You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 17th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. Is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, with elections this week in Iran, we examine how sanctions have stimulated the hardliners. My guests, Yossi Meckelberg and Robert Fox, will discuss that and the day's other news, including peace by proxy. With the Syrian conflict entering a new phase, what can Russia and Turkey contribute? And don't walk. Is jaywalking a crime or are the wheels coming off for motorists? Plus, Teenage debutantes open the night with a carefully choreographed waltz, and everyone takes part in a quadrille dance at midnight. Monocle's Venetia Rainey on an annual Austrian spectacle. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Yossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University, and Robert Fox, who's the London Evening Standards Defence Editor. Let's begin in Iran, gentlemen. The country is going to the polls this week in an election that's gained little enthusiasm from voters. Iranians are fed up with a crippled economy and the continued US sanctions, as well as the threat of military conflict. So what are the stakes in these elections? Well, the stakes are high, especially after the uh, the demonstration in November, of, uh, after the recent increase in uh, oil prices and, and food uh, prices. The rest then came the shooting down of the Ukrainian airplane. This kind of the, the, this kind of brought to the fore kind of the incompetence of the of the Iranian regime and brought people to the streets. So I think there is underlying issues there that looking for a trigger. And, but the problem with the elections is that most of the members of the parliament, of the majlis, are actually selected before that. Who can run for the majlis is selected by the regime. So there is not the kind of variety, pluralism, that you would expect in, in, in such, such elections. So what, if the Iranian people want to protest, probably the best thing they can do is stay at home. On the other hand, if they stay at home, they give the most radical, the most extreme, probably complete control of parliament. So this is the kind of the dilemma they are going uh, going to face. But what we, we think is probably uh, there will be complete control by the revolutionary guard and the more radical, less pragmatist in, in, in the majlis in the next four years. Mm. I mean, Robert, how would you uh, define the, the separation of power then between the revolutionary guard and, and the political wing of, of the government there? Well, the revolutionary guard is um, an enormous presence. It's an enormous presence in the economy, of course. And um, I don't know whether Yossi would agree with me. I think it's best described in the way that the Russians would describe it as a combinat. It's, uh, it's, it's, it is in, in itself a military-industrial complex. And so it, 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 it swings around a lot of weight. And we were led to believe this from the outside with the whole, um, uh, the, the, the whole play out from the killing of Qasem Soleimani, who was in charge of the... He actually wasn't even the commander of the Revolutionary Guard. He was the commander of the Al-Quds Force. And what we got there, which relates exactly to what Yossi has just been saying, was a very well-orchestrated display of militant nationalism when they paraded... 
uh, his body around various provincial capitals. It did um, remind me rather of the whole ceremonial or non-ceremonious parading of the body of Eva Peron in Argentina at that time. And he was supposed to be the icon of Iranian nationalism. What was absolutely clear was that that was orchestrated and absolutely, as Ossie is saying, we're not really seeing. There is a lot of resentment. There's a lot bubbling away. But from my Iranian contacts, what I'm hearing is now is not the time. It is not the time to go to the street and it is not the time to upset the apple cart uh, with the election to the majlis. But there is one point, of course, that the chronology says that we're at an end game because this is the last uh, 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 throw of the original revolutionary generation. So That's the point. That They are dying out. They are going, the supreme leader will die fairly soon, I suspect, and then we're into a new iteration. So, I mean, uh, Yossi, as, as Robert's saying, I mean, the... There was all this protest on the street that that was essentially stopped dead by people saying, this is not the time, don't rock the boat, because a huge uh, defence concentration on the country at the time. When then do those people come back? And if they're not using their vote to affect change, when will they do it? Do they have to wait for the death of the Supreme Leader? But it's it's exactly the point that Robert made. There is a state within a state, and, and this state within a state is a very powerful one. And when revolution do take place or revolutionary situation is emerging, it's a balance of power between the regime and the people in the streets. And people in the street assess, are we strong enough actually to topple the government? So they tried in 2009 and they were suppressed violently. It was a bloody oppression of, you know, by the besieges of of, of the people in the street. Here and there, you see, especially in the provinces, you can you can see you can see demonstration. Now, at a certain point, you need to see as it happened in the, the Iranian Revolution in 1978-79. You know, when people went to the streets, they sensed that the Shah was not as strong as he was before had been before, so they could actually throw him out. I don't think this is the situation now. Now, I would add something here, that the United States is making it even worse by its policy, because what it is that the sanctions will bite, and as a result of it, people will go to the street, what, as usually with sanctions, actually empowers the regime instead of empowering the people in, in, in the street. Europe is always on the sidelines being indecisive on this one. So... Why should people risk their life and say we are not going to get the support from the outside and the revolutionary guards and others, not only the revolutionary guards within the regime, are too strong for us Mm. in order? Meanwhile, though, they they have this opportunity to vote in an election, even though, as you say, Robert, it, it really there is not much of a, a, a democratic choice here. What what uh, issues are they being allowed to influence through their vote? They won't influence much, but it will be driven by the the shocking state of the economy, just the price of life and living, which uh, it really is biting. And this is where you get resentment. But what Yossi has underlined, a real tipping point that didn't tip, if if I could put it like that, was 2009 in the Green Revolution. Remember, the thing that Assad has done his best to destroy in Syria still obtains in Iran. There is a broad intelligentsia. There is a broad intelligentsia which is quite secular in its values. And they are biding their time. 
there has been a continuing brain drain, but there are there is a sufficient number staying inside. And they absolutely know what the name of the game is. Rouhani and Zarif, they're figureheads. That, you know, the real game comes on with a generation. And I was just thinking, but, you know, if, if you follow the cycles, you know, the chaos theory of history, historical patterns of revolution, of course, the revolution will come from within the Revolutionary Guard, from a very unexpected direction. One thing, though, that is affecting from the foreign adventures, I understand, which is affecting the cost of living very, very badly, is it's running out of money. Mm. It's running out of foreign exchange. This is why the intelligentsia again, and they do read the internet and get information, they are fed up with the Hezbollification of the of the conflict in Iraq, in Syria, and in, and, and in Lebanon, because that was done with dollars raised from Iran, which Iran can't do anymore. Mm. And this is affecting very, very badly Iraq. And that is why the Iranian influ- I- influence is waning there. And th- conditions, as we know, are desperate. And they've managed to spawn an even worse or neo-fascist regime uh, in northern Yemen uh, w- 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 with the Houthi. So things are not good. But where the American miscalculation is so glaring, as Yossi was saying, is that they have no vision of an end state at all. They talk uh, within the beltway. The the hawks talk about regime change. Gosh, haven't they learnt anything from Afghanistan and Iraq over the last 20, 25 years? You've got to deliver. And if you get involved in anything there, um, you own it, as Colin Powell said. The problem with people like Pompeo is they do not understand the currency of them spouting off with this uh, kind of evangelical revivalist thing that we can change, change everything. What I think the Iranian voter, the sophisticated Iranian vote, voter, the internet reading voter will know, the Americans can deliver very, very little indeed. Mm. But it might be counterproductive yes. because it will unify actually the more extreme parts of the yes. Iranian revolution and it probably will get worse before it will get better because as they run out of money, they might become even more oppressive. Yeah. And What's the best possible result then in this election? I, I really think that by voting, there is an element of legitimizing a regime that's probably not that legitimate. And I think the best probably that the Iranian can do is stay away from the ballot box. Yossi Meckelberg and Robert Fox there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Rylan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Georgina. Around 400 American citizens have been evacuated from a coronavirus-hit cruise ship in Japan. The vessel, which is currently docked in the port of Yokohama, has more than 3,000 passengers and crew on board. The Americans left on planes chartered by the US government. France says the UK should expect a tough battle with the EU in trade negotiations. The foreign ministry says that the two sides would rip each other apart as they fight for an advantage in the negotiations and that the UK will struggle to agree to a free trade deal with the bloc by the end of the year. And Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has cancelled a trip to Barbados to resolve protests over the construction of a natural gas pipeline. Canada's indigenous communities have been blocking key railway lines for nearly two weeks in a bid to stop the construction of the pipeline in British Columbia. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin here with Robert Fox and Yossi Meckelberg. Of course, Iran is also involved in the Syrian conflict. Tomorrow, 
Turkey and Russia will hold talks on the situation in Syria, where Russian-backed troops loyal to Bashar al-Assad are making advances in the northwestern region. Turkish-backed rebel forces have launched an operation to retake the territory. Erdogan, the Turkish leader, has urged Russia to stop its heavy airstrikes and has warned that it will use military power to drive back the Syrian forces unless they withdraw by the end of the month. US President Donald Trump, meanwhile, has called for an end to Russian support of Assad's regime in the face of government troops' atrocities on the ground. So, Robert, does this reflect a new geopolitical paradigm? Russia and Turkey involved, the US largely absent. The absence of the of the US except in hot air is a given um, now. But then, and I don't want to be too sort of like a Jesuit theologian in saying what do we mean by power and influence, because Turkey is quite strapped. Turkey can't put too many of its regular units in the way they are reinforcing as we speak their observation posts in Idlib, Idlib province, province because they do not want the 800,000 refugees, new refugees, since December turning into 2 million, mm. amongst other things. But they're also committed against the Kurds. Remember um, Operation Olive Spring? Well, nobody's told me that it's been called off where they have got really stuck that further along the border between Syria and um and, and and Turkey, where they're trying to take out the self-declared entity Kurdish ed- entity there, because they say it's just a front for the for the, for the PKK. Plus, Erdogan is getting very antsy, and that really is the right expression, about Libya and Algeria, and he's been in both countries or on the border in Tunisia, but in Algeria recently. I mean, Turkey is in a mess, and we we should discuss as to why Turkey is in a mess, but so is Russia. Mm. Russia does not, sorry to be, I'm not trying to be a smart ass about this, but Russia does not want to put boots on the ground. This is why, if you look look very carefully at the pictures, up until very recently, Recently, by and large, what Russian presence has been has been military police to police the levies, to police the mercenaries. They've been putting in mercenaries who've not been terribly good as they've been putting mercenaries into eastern Libya, supporting uh, Khalifa. But they do not want to put boots on the ground. Sorry to bash the table. Mm. They can want to do it with air and air support and it's pretty cranky old stuff which they can use, sort of works and causes an awful lot of damage and is very indiscriminatory. The other part of this very, very difficult equation sorry, we've been there already, is the Iranian element. Mm. It's the Iranian raised, trained, promoted by Mohandis, the guy who was very instrumental in this, who was the guy that was killed along with um, Soleimani, uh, the, the, the new Hezbollahs, as it were, which aren't just Lebanese, they're, they're mercenaries from Iraq, they're the, 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 the popular brigades, but they, they're running out of steam. And if they're running out of steam, uh, that's why whatever you may read in the papers about an endgame for Assad, don't believe it. I think and this is what the Russians and the Turks, if they're realists, will be describing. This thing shows no end at all with the present cards on the table. I mean, the Russian and the Turks are, are talking t- tomorrow, uh, Yossi. It's a very fragile relationship. Is it, is it going to be damaged irreparably by this? 
It's, it's a fragile situation, and every time that we get, as Robert says, to, to the kind of the idea, oh, we are reaching the end of this war because the Assad regime is winning. There is no winning in this situation. And whatever we think about winning, it will take years from now just to try to settle and find some political situation. In this, the competition between Turkey and Russia, but at the same time, the commonality of interest on other will bring them sometimes to clash and sometimes to look for, 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 an, for an agreement. But the problem is the situation in, in Syria. And of course, when we look... A, we, we should probably learn what we, the international community never learns. If you don't deal with issues like this early on, it drags on and on and on. It just gets worse. It shows the, the fragility, not only of the situation, but the international community of the United Nations. Of Again, the lack of the United States there, which, you know, the rhetoric is coming from the White House. And you think uh, they are going to actually do something. But then, of course, they do absolutely nothing. They're, especially when it comes to humanitarian issue, you have 700,000 people that just been mm. forced again out of out of Italy. Italy. Yeah. So we'll see more and more atrocities. Mm. So in this kind of situation, we'll see all the time changing of alliances. It's day by day changes of alliances. So one day you will see Ankara and Moscow in the same boat, and the next day they won't be because they have them, themselves have contradictory interests that change from day to day. Ankara doesn't want to see Bashar al-Assad in play. Uh, Moscow wants it. At the same time, there is the issue of refugees. So there will be constant changes there. And of course, the point, it's not only Iran, it's also Israeli interest there. So it's the entire region in, in one country. The, the, there is a demonstration and exposed the kind of the contradictory interest between them. I just want to bring in something that you both said about refugees, because obviously humanitarian disaster looks pretty much assured. Uh, Turkey has said that there is a possibility they may just open their borders and allow that new wave of people who've been displaced to cross through into Europe. Would the EU then be forced to act, Robert? I think it would, but I think that a typical piece of Erdogan uh, rhetoric, he is the grandstander to end them all, um, it's easier said than done. These people are desperate. They've got no means to pay the traffickers. And the Greeks, I don't blame them, because they're, 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 uh, and particularly some of the tougher Western Balkan countries would just say, no. I want to add something which is very important, because I think we're getting it wrong in geopolitical terms. It's all very well and good to blame Trump. Yes, I, I do criticise his regime for a lot of things. But a lot of this, you know, I can't be committed, really started with Obama. Let's put that one on the table. The other thing is that we're being much too Western in our conception of the interest involved. They are not governed by boundaries and the old frontiers. That's the thing that's going. And the thing that is going to, about to absolutely explode, if it hasn't already, which will affect the very thing we're talking about, Russia, Turkey, is Libya. Because I was talking to people who have been deeply involved in Libya, where the Turks are desperate to keep the uh, government of national agreement going, some hope, and are prepared to put troops in. And they are very worried that the same thing is going to happen in Algeria for very, very good reasons. And it's the desert where there are no frontiers, where there is very serious insurrection in both Libya, 
two large countries and and in Algeria. And I was putting to a friend of mine, a very, very sharp Italian diplomat who is involved with both Libya and Algeria. And he said, look, Robert, the problem is this, that the, you know, the, 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 the organization of, of, of African unity has given up on Somalia. And what we're fearing is what we're looking at, not only do we have Somalia, but the new Somalia, but even bigger, not the new Syria, is going to be Libya. And Turkey is deeply involved in that. And Tur- Turkey technically is confronting Russia in Libya at, at the moment because one supports Tripoli, the other supports Benghazi. And the, and, and the thing that Turkey is after and is desperate about in the eastern Mediterranean, it is not getting any of the action on the oil. And as long as Russia supports uh, uh, Haftar Khalifa in Benghazi, it is getting a lot of Libyan oil. Not that it, it really needs all that much, but it, 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 uh, and underneath the kind of thing that we've been discussing, re-Syria, re-the eastern Mediterranean, re-Libya, there's this enormous oil and gas chess game going as well. Exactly. At, at the, 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 gas, yeah. the, the, the gas pipe that goes from Israel, uh, Greece, and, and old, uh, into, into Europe, and, and you make it even more complex mm. in, in this sense. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry that we could talk about this topic for <laughs> a sorry, very long time. sorry, we probably made it very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like to go to something a, a little bit lighter. I'm sure there's a joke here, something about why did the American cross the road, but that the town council in Phoenix, Arizona, has proposed changes to jaywalking laws that could see repeat offenders end up in jail. So for some transport experts, uh, this attempt to encourage safer streets is wrong-headed. So they argue that it places excessive responsibility for public safety on pedestrians instead of regulating dangerous drivers. Uh, Yossi, this isn't anything new. I mean, the, the automobile lobby fairly successfully placed responsibility for individual safety on pedestrians rather than drivers back in the early 20th century when, when cars were just coming in. Honestly, the first thought that I had when I saw this uh, piece of news, <laughs> that in my visits to Phoenix, I couldn't see any pedestrians. Everyone <laughs> drives there. And especially when it gets 40, 45 degrees out there, they actually start the engine already in the garages, as they call it, and just drive. So I was the only one walking there. So I probably would, the one will be fine in this situation. <laughs> but rub- you know, making you know a serious point. Yes, it's, it's the kind of the car is king in in the United States, and it's it's impacts a lot of other things like climate change. But they do they do drive, and the pedestrian became kind of a sideshow. The idea of walking in the street to the idea that you drive from place to place. If you go to certain parts of the United States, you know, I like my, my walks when I'm, when I'm going to the United States. You know, it's nice to see what's around. I feel myself quite lonely in, 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 in the streets. Everyone drives. So obviously in the hundred years plus since the introduction of the car and Mr. Ford, it's pedestrian are not... Are, are not seen as important part of the landscape. Mm, absolutely. And and you make the point about climate change. And I wonder if, yeah. if this legislation, like or other legislation like this, is looking increasingly outdated because in spite of the lobbyists, public opinion really is turning against the rights of the motorists, isn't it, Robert? Well, yes. And But... Um, that I was looked at the excellent literature you've given me on this, and two thirds of the offences involving um, pedestrians are the driver's fault. Um, as I well know, um, 
the thing is, Phoenix, Arizona, yeah, but if you do it in Singapore, a repeat offender can get six months in jail and a $1,000 fine. I think it relates to two things. I don't want to go into great detail. One is the attitude to cyclists, which I find, being a cyclist myself, and a habitual driver, not so much now, absolutely fascinating in London. And there is real fear of the cyclist. And the cyclists are becoming as militant and as successful as the cyclists in Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, by the way, if you hit a cyclist, the guilt is presumed to be that of the driver, uh, which, 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 which is very peculiar. But the other thing is mobile phones. God, being on a bicycle, there's one thing worse than another person on a bicycle. It's a jaywalker with a mobile phone because they can't hear you. So, you know, six and one and half a dozen of the other. But I do think, actually, I hope you're right. I think you're right. Um, the force is with us, you know, us on two wheels and two legs. Do you think, Yossi, that tighter regulation like sort of speed limits and that sort of thing would be useful in getting people to, to ditch the cars? You won't be surprised if you say that everything starts with education. And, and yeah. I think you need to educate people to behave. I agree with the cyclists and the militancy of, of cyclists and then the fights between cars and lorries and cyclists and pedestrians. It's become all out in London as well. But I think we need to look at integrated public transport in which we all live in peace with one another, but it starts with education. I don't think finding $250, as they suggest, pedestrian for... <laughs> Jaywalking, as they call it, is the solution. Yossi Meckelberg and Robert Fox, thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about Vienna's bumper balls. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Finally today, with ball season underway in Vienna, Monocle's Venetia Rainey reflects on the importance of holding on to tradition, even as we look towards the future. Care to dance? This Thursday we'll see 5,000 politicians, celebrities and believers in high society gather in Vienna for the historic opera ball. Although Vienna sees around 450 balls during its annual month-long ball season, a tradition that dates back to 19th century Habsburg court life, this event is by far the highlight. The interior of the grand neo-Renaissance-style opera house is emptied for the event as it's turned into a ballroom, with guests paying up to 23,000 euros for a 12-person box from which to watch proceedings, food not included. Teenage debutantes open the night with a carefully choreographed waltz, and everyone takes part in a quadrille dance at midnight. It's an old-world tradition, full of pomp and echoes of Austria's former monarchy, but one that you can't help but be fascinated by. How often do you see people of different generations getting dressed up in formal attire to dance the night away together? It's also big business, with guests spending around 300 euros each on everything from preparatory dance classes to plates of Sacker sausages for sustenance. As the Monocle team found out while reporting our Austria-themed March issue, this small European country is bursting with stories of this kind, where tradition butts up against the modern world. Be it the couple keeping vintage public weighing scales up and running, or the cafes sticking to the most indulgent, time-honoured recipes for cake, our latest issue pays homage to the rarefied, decadent and sometimes odd tales that give Austria its enduring charm. 
That was Venetia Rainey. And that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustine Machelari and researched by Charlie German. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 20 hundred hours, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.